0: an undeceptions podcast
1: as a very young man you wrote a book that sold a million copies
2: Mm. yeah it was called i kiss dating goodbye and that got a lot of attention because it was a, a radical idea we shouldn't just not have sex we should stop dating because dating is leading to us uh making these mistakes so
1: The first time you kissed your wife was?
2: At the altar, yeah. I got married uh, about a year and a half after that book was released and then dove into being a pastor and pastored a church for for 17 years. I was a pastor there.
1: And then this summer you went on Instagram and said essentially, I don't believe. Mm. By all the measurements that I have for defining a Christian, Mm. I'm not a Christian. What do you mean by that?
2: I was really just trying to be honest about the fact that all the ways that I had defined faith and Christianity, that I was no longer choosing to live according to those.
0: That's best-selling author and former pastor Joshua Harris speaking with journalist Mike Allen about his deconversion from Christianity. Harris shot to fame in 1997 when he released his controversial but uber-popular book, I Kissed Dating Goodbye. Just 22 years old when he published this, Harris advocated for the abandonment of traditional dating in favour of a more structured courtship process, including the rather extreme no kissing before marriage recommendation. While the book received pushback in some corners of the Christian market, it catapulted Harris to prominence as a new leader in a new generation. Then, in July 2019, Harris took to Instagram to make an announcement.
3: I have undergone a massive shift in regard to my faith in Jesus. The popular phrase for this is deconstruction. The biblical phrase is falling away by all the measurements that I have for defining a Christian, I am not a Christian. Many people tell me that there is a different way to practice faith, and I want to remain open to this, but I'm not there now. It breaks my heart.
0: Harris's announcement sent shockwaves through the worldwide evangelical community. Here's a popular and celebrated church leader whose books were crucial for many coming to and living the life of faith, rejecting the whole thing. It was hard to get your head around. But Harris is by no means the only one who's experienced deconstruction in recent years. The term deconstruction is a bit of a buzzword at the moment. It was first coined by French philosopher Jacques Derrida, who adapted it from the work of Martin Heidegger, so it's deep. It refers to the act of exploring the categories and concepts that tradition has imposed on a word and the history behind them. From this background, it's becoming common to use deconstruction to describe the process of re-evaluating the traditions of the Christian faith. Musicians Kevin Max from DC Talk and Dustin Kensu from Thrice, former church leader Rob Bell, author Jen Hatmaker, and singer and podcaster Michael Gungor are just a few of the more well-known public Christians who talk about their own deconstructions, with some now adopting the label exvangelical. The trend is seeping down from famous Christians to the average Christian in the pew. One survey by Lifeway Research found that of the three quarters of pastors who knew what deconstruction was, 27% of them had seen someone they know go through it. So, what's going on? If the claims of Christianity are solid, something Underceptions is devoted to exploring, why are people questioning and even dumping the Christian faith in droves. We have two guests today, one who's been tracking this trend closely and another who's seen deconstruction up close and personal. I guess we're going to deconstruct deconstruction. I'm John Dixon. Welcome to Season 10 of Undeceptions. This season of Undeceptions is sponsored by Zondervan Academic. Get discounts on master lectures, video courses, and exclusive samples of their books at zondervanacademic.com forward slash Undeceptions don't forget to write Undeceptions. Each episode here at Undeceptions, we explore some aspect of life, faith, philosophy, history, science, culture, or ethics that's either much misunderstood or mostly forgotten. And with the help of people who know what they're talking about, we're trying to undeceive ourselves and let the truth out. This episode of Undeceptions is brought to you by Zondervan Academics' new book, The Truth in True Crime. What investigating death teaches us about the meaning of life by acclaimed cold case homicide detective J. Warner Wallace. After years of investigating the causes behind deaths and murders... A lot of my listeners who don't believe, they haven't even constructed, so they're not even thinking about deconstructing. But I think this will be an interesting conversation for them. Can you first give us a sense of what deconstruction is and and how you're approaching it?
4: Well, that's one of the challenges because the word is equivocal, meaning that it can refer to a lot of different things. Sometimes people think of deconstruction, how postmodernists would use the term like Derrida, which is kind of a literary technique in postmodern kind of movements. That's one understanding of deconstruction that maybe gained some traction in the 80s, 90s and beyond. There's another sense where people talk
0: about deconstruction. That's Sean McDowell, Associate Professor in the Christian Apologetics Program at Talbot School of Theology at Biola University over in California. In addition to his academic day job, he's also a YouTuber, podcaster, and writer covering all areas of Christian advocacy, or what Americans call apologetics. You know, I hate that word, but I love Sean's approach and skill in this task. His new book, Set Adrift, Deconstructing What You Believe Without Losing Your Faith, was co-authored with his Biola colleague, John
4: Marriott, and it's out now. 90s and beyond, there's another sense where people talk about deconstruction in terms of losing and leaving your faith. Sometimes people say if you've deconstructed, you once had a faith and you left it. That's not how I use it. I think to leave one's faith is to deconvert. The way John and I, my, my co-author use deconstruction, is D de- refers to, D-E, breaking down, construct is to build back up. So somebody who has a certain amount of faith and goes to a period of questioning, goes to a period of doubt, and says, "What?" and says, "What can I hold on to? What do I still believe? And what do I get rid of?" So in some ways, it's a natural process that everybody goes through on varying degrees. Jacques Derrida's type of
0: deconstruction is complicated. He's a French philosopher, after all. But he was essentially destabilising any fixed meaning, fixed truth, suggesting that in the final analysis, many concepts and words are power structures, ways of forcing conformity to a tradition. The analogy with Christian deconstruction is real. Sean writes in his book, The belief that one has reached the single, correct interpretation of reality provides a great excuse for condemning those who disagree with it. Those people then become marginalised, excluded and oppressed. Deconstruction then, for Derrida and for this Christian analogue, explains away the tradition. It neutralises the power of the thing and maybe causes the alleged truth behind the thing to vanish. Instead of being an actor in the play, Sean writes, of those deconstructing the faith, they find themselves the critic in the audience, wondering if the version of the play they're watching is reflective of what the playwright envisioned. But Sean and his co writer aren't dogmatic about all of this. They reckon deconstruction can actually be a good thing. Some stuff in church is junk, mere tradition. Or, more common nowadays, mere fad recently added to the collection of the faith. Deconstructing this stuff would be good. It's like spiritual pruning. But like pruning, you can sometimes cut off too much. And the whole plant withers. There are a lot of people who are throwing away most of the construction though. I mean, especially in the US, it, it, it's a peculiarly US phenomenon, but US usually leads the world on, on lots of things.
2: <laughs> so what would
0: you say are the main reasons people are questioning their constructed faith?
4: Well, there's a lot of factors to this. So there's not just one reason somebody deconstructs, and you know this. So whenever I'm in conversation with somebody, I want to try as best I can to get to the heart of the issue. I mean, there's a proverb that says, the purposes in a man's heart are deep, and someone of wisdom draws it out. So there tend to be a few things. Sometimes there's genuine intellectual questions. There's doubts about contradictions in the Bible, the reconciliation of science and faith, that becomes an issue. Sometimes there's more tension with issues within culture. We're seeing this a lot with issues of sexuality and LGBTQ, meaning do I have to be bigoted and hateful towards my gay friends if I hold on to my faith? That tends to be a topic. What you see a lot, John, is church hurt. I mean, over and over again, I mean, I am just amazed that when I have conversations with people and just listen who either deconverted or have just gone through a period of deconstruction, there's hypocrisy that they've seen, there's spiritual abuse that they have experienced, there's disillusionment at the church. And sometimes that's personal, sometimes that's looking more broadly at just how Christians carry themselves out many times, sadly, in the political arena, so that can be a piece of it. Another reason, there can just be, I think, pride issues. So the bottom line is there can be emotional reasons, there can be intellectual reasons, there can be relational reasons, there can be spiritual reasons, moral reasons, all sorts of them. But I think two things have kind of precipitated it today. Number one is just the vast amount of information at our fingertips. So there's always been people who deconstruct, but the amount of information and the medium of different worldviews and challenges to the faith is unlike any generation before. So I think that has really helped to precipitate it. But there's also the sense now that everybody has to identify who they are and be unique and tell your story to the world. So if you have questions and doubts, you need to proclaim your story to the world. And the media focuses a lot more on stories that are more controversial. So for example, a friend of mine, Bart Campolo, his father, Tony Campolo, and my dad, Josh McDowell, too huge evangelical figures in the 80s and 90s. When Bart deconstructed and ultimately deconverted, there have been some stories about him because he bailed on the faith of his father. They haven't done a story on me. It's not as interesting to say he holds very similar views as his dad. So I just think there's a lot of factors going on right now that seems to draw attention to this, unlike in the past.
0: Bart Campolo, by the way, is an American humanist and speaker who was once a Christian. He's the son of famed pastor Tony Campolo, who, among other things, served as the spiritual advisor to the Clinton administration in the 1990s. Like his dad, Bart began his career in ministry. But following a near-death bike crash in 2011, he renounced his Christian faith. He and his dad have actually co-authored a book called why I left, why I stayed. Along the way to renouncing God altogether, Campolo wrote a controversial article in the Journal of Student Ministries.
3: He noted, Some might say I would be wise to swallow my misgivings about stuff like God's sovereignty, wrath, hell, remain orthodox and thereby secure my place with God in eternity. But that is precisely my point. If those things are true, then God might as well send me to hell. For better or worse, I simply am not interested in any God but a completely good, entirely loving and perfectly forgiving one who is powerful enough to utterly triumph over evil.
0: Campolo's reasons for leaving the faith were primarily concerned with some of the church's key beliefs. He couldn't abide a God who would send people to hell, a God who didn't have the power just to save everyone. That deserves a whole episode, which is why we're working on a whole episode on hell. But there are other issues that drive people away. A study conducted in 2023 by Barna Research Group, a top social survey organisation here in the US, found that the top instigators for deconstruction were hypocrisy or negative experience at the hands of other church members, 27%, human suffering, 23%, and broader problems in the world, such as natural disasters or climate change. 19%. Fascinatingly, only 7% cited a lack of history behind the figure of Jesus as a reason to let go of the faith. Do we have any data on just how many people are deconstructing?
4: You know, what's hard about the data is that do we really know how many people first believe or not? That's where it's difficult. So there's theological questions about people who leave Did they ever first believe? And I'll tell you, John, in my experience, one of the questions that I ask people who have deconverted, not just deconstructed, because that's, again, a very different phenomena. One of the things I ask is, I'll say, I'm interested in your story leaving the faith, but tell me when you came in, tell me about that moment where you knew that you were a sinner, And you cried out to God for his grace. And I'm telling you, John, over and over again, it is the exception when somebody has an experience of an awareness of their sinfulness and an experience of God's grace. Oftentimes, people give other kind of experiences coming in. So that's why when I look at deconversion statistics, I'm not sure we really know. We know that somebody maybe identified as a Christian and then doesn't anymore. But how many really were believers? That's where it gets just a little bit sticky to me. And, I, you know, I've seen studies of teenagers that lead their faith anywhere from like a third to two thirds. I mean, there's massive range of studies depending on how they're asked and so i just don't know that i put a ton of stock in those but it's certainly a concerning phenomena and i think larger than a lot of people would like to admit
0: am i right getting the sense that people are deconstructing principally because of in aristotle's terms the ethos dimension that is the sort of the the moral credibility of the church that that this is having a greater impact than say, you know, does God
4: exist? It's really interesting you ask this question, John, because my father spent years, I mean, he wrote Evidence Demands Verdict in 1972 and has spoken on 1200 college campuses. He would tell me, he'd say the biggest questions were Christianity's is not true, give me evidence, prove it. And then you start to see this shift kind of bubbling up in the 90s and maybe early 2000s about Christianity being bigoted, and intolerant and harmful it's almost like the heart of the questions have shift from is christianity true to is christianity good and you can almost argue is it beautiful so in the minds of many people not all if Christianity's not good i don't care if you think it's true or not That's how a lot of people think. No, I'm not saying that's how everybody thinks. People still do care about truth today, despite what we're told in our post-truth culture. But the way we're approaching religion, I think, is far more through a lens of is it good? Is it harming society? Is it beneficial versus is it objectively true regardless of how I feel about it?
0: I'm not sure if it's your experience but in my experience when I talk people through these sort of moral credibility questions and you know help them see things with more clarity if they really want to avoid Christianity they all suddenly become so-called modernist and ask me but is it true you know yeah. it's like they're looking for the escape hatch but it's just interesting that there's a whole grab bag of Reasons to avoid the faith, and at the moment, those
4: to the fore are the questions around: Is Christianity mean? People are still asking, "Is Christianity true?" I have a que- I have an interaction with people, and they're going to ask, "Well, I don't know, if Jesus is God. Did he rise from the grave?" But uh, as an example, and this is only one example, but I just did a Q and with about nine hundred high school students live in Washington D.C. for two hours. And there was the number one topic I got asked about period was the larger LGBTQ conversation. It was not the age of the earth. It was not primarily some of the questions that people were asking decades ago. This is the question young people are trying to figure out. How do I love my neighbor? What does this mean for my faith? How do I navigate this world when these moral, ethical, cultural questions are so different than they when they were during the time of the new atheism, you know, 10 to 12 years ago? I would have gotten primarily questions about science and faith, questions about evolution, you know, et cetera. So I think that conversation has shifted a little bit. And there's other shifts in there, but I think you're on to a big one that we're seeing with this younger generation. The
0: shift from, is Christianity true to is Christianity good, has been a tricky one for many Christian communicators, myself included, to grapple with. For many people, and particularly, but not exclusively, young people, weighing up the biblical stance on issues like sexuality, judgment, and the claim that there's only one God can be both complicated and deeply personal. It makes people think Christianity is mean. Dumb and mean is the perception many have of the faith.
5: But it's not all bad news. Deconstruction has become synonymous with walking away from the faith. Period. That's all it is. Is deconstruction, oh. Atheism, that's what people see in their mind. I think um, it got popularized around the time, um, you know, Michael Gunger kind of went through a lot of what he was going through, you know, years back. He experienced a lot of church hurt and he basically was like, man, I'm deconstructing and I'm just kind of walking away from the faith. And what I have seen is that oftentimes people walk away from the faith or deconstruct or step outside because they have correlated that, This institutional, corporate, when I say those, I mean like capitalistic, money-grabbing, culturally exclusive, politicized version of the faith, is married to Jesus. And so they're saying, I don't want anything to do with any of it. And they end up throwing the baby out with the bathwater oftentimes. I know because I did it too. That's right. I deconstructed. I just did not understand. That's Christian rapper Lecrae in a
0: clip posted on his YouTube channel back in 2022. Lecrae is one of those famous Christians who recently delved into deconstruction, but he came away with a different perspective from that of some of his contemporaries.
5: But I've been very fortunate to travel the world and realize that there are broken people everywhere, but there are also institutions and infrastructures that do not look like what we have created here in America. It's not to say that they're better, is just to say that they have different issues and different struggles and i began to realize that the struggles that we have are not necessary in other places right and so i was able to see the difference between the christ of the scriptures and the christ that we have kind of propped up as like a politicized commercialized version and um, and I said, oh, I don't want the politicized, commercialized stuff, but I do want Christ, and I do want His church, and I do want the fellowship, and the, the, all of those particular things. So my heart goes
0: out to everybody. For Lecrae, the process of deconstructing American Christendom was actually a helpful thing for his faith. He was able to see who Jesus is more clearly by discovering what he wasn't. This sort of echoes the method of via negativa, the negative way, applied by honorary friend of the pod, Thomas Aquinas. It involves exploring what God is not in order to get a better picture of what he is. Aquinas writes in his Summa Theologiae, we are unable to apprehend the divine substance by knowing what it is, yet we are able to have some knowledge of it by knowing what it is not. LaCrae and Aquinas, boom. What are the ways in which this deconstruction process can be healthy?
4: Yeah, I love that you asked this. And of course, this depends on what we mean by deconstruction. So some people mean deconstruction, there's a certain attitude and an anger and a hurt that motivates it. I'm not saying always, but I see that in some cases. If that's the case, that is not something I would characterize as primarily healthy. But if somebody's saying, I gotta figure out what I believe and why, I gotta figure out what it means to be a Jesus follower. I've gotta separate tradition of just my upbringing from what Jesus really taught. That's a very, very healthy thing. And I think all of us should go through that. So if we look in the mirror and are like, I believe exactly the same thing as my parents and my church, Well, maybe we haven't taken the time to really think through and expand our horizons and grow. So when young people come to me and say they're deconstructing their faith, or oftentimes I'll just say I have questions and I'll have doubts, I'll say, that's great. Good for you. And they'll kind of look at me like I'm nuts, and I'll say, it's because you realize how important these questions are. You realize what's at stake, and you're spending time thinking about it. These are the questions that are going to shape your whole life. So I'm glad you want to own your own faith. And so I think we need to not be reactionary when people have these kinds of questions. If Christianity is really true, it can handle the toughest questions. It really can. And you know what? Kids are going to, in our era of just endless information, they're going to have questions. So some of the studies that I've seen out of, this is is really younger millennials, Sticky Faith Research, Kara Powell and Chap Clark from Fuller Seminary would say, it's not questions and doubts that hijack a faith. It's unexpressed questions and unexpressed doubt. So when kids express their doubt and they express their questions, in some ways they're developing a more mature, robust, real faith. And it, it is the case, isn't it, that, that not all churches are cool
0: with people questioning?
4: It's kind of a painful question, John. I mean, I have so many conversations with people because of this, this book that's coming out. I've decided I'm going to talk with a lot of people just who've deconstructed and/or deconverted their faith and just hear their stories. And one common theme over and over again is just my parents or my church or you know the christians in my life did not invite questions they shot it down and you know parents and pastors can do this for different reasons you know sometimes they're probably doing what they think is best and trying to help but if you're having real questions that's not a helpful response i mean a good friend of mine oh my goodness he went through a period of doubting his, his name's Preston Olmer he does these things called doubters clubs where he invites Christians and non-Christians to come together and simply have conversations and they listen to each other and they challenge ideas, but it's respectful. He went through a painful doubting period. And one of the things his youth pastor said was sleep on the Bible. He goes, just sleep on it. And somehow like osmosis, it's supposed to like infuse into his body. And I hear that. I'm thinking, there's no one who said that. That's ridiculous. I'm sure the youth pastor was trying to help, but I hear these kinds of stories over and over again, and it makes me grieve because if there's any religion that can take tough questions and should invite tough questions, like you said, it's Christianity. And as a whole, we just don't do a great job of doing so.
0: I find it so sad that when someone expresses sentiments of doubt or deconstruction, they'll often get serious blowback from their church community. Churches aren't always awesome with the topic of doubt. The church, or perhaps pastors specifically, can be jealous of the truth, zealous to maintain the faith, and maybe just a little insecure in these secularizing times, and that can lead to a culture that won't abide doubt. This vibe is huge in cults, but it shouldn't be present in the community grounded in Jesus Christ. Many of our Undeception's heroes from Origen to Augustine, from Bede to Alcuin of York, from Aquinas to Kierkegaard, and many others were all deconstructors in the good sense they asked searing questions both intellectual and emotional and sought to separate tradition from truth mere fads from the eternal faith go back and listen to our recent Kirkie gore episode blind faith was just toward the end of last season because that man was a total deconstructor but he ended up with a zeal that I find inspiring. Speaking of someone I find inspiring, after the break, I'm joined by the lovely Chad Gardner, frontman of the American rock band King's Kaleidoscope. His band was connected with Mars Hill Church, a mega church implosion if there ever was one. It left a long trail of hurt and distrust. It was a catalyst, understandably, for some tragic deconstruction, and also for some reconstruction. So stick around. In the Democratic Republic of Congo, corruption and conflict have plagued communities like Kindu for decades, and access to quality education as a result. Is scarce. Schools around Kindu, one of the poorest parts of the DRC, are often dilapidated. They lack basic essentials like books or even teachers. Anglican Aid is looking to change that. By making a tax deductible donation to Anglican Aid, you can play a crucial role in providing the tools and resources necessary to transform children's lives. Your donation will help workers on the ground in the DRC to rebuild classrooms, supply materials for students and offer a comprehensive training for educators. Already there's been incredible progress. Five schools have been renovated with over 600 students enrolled and thriving. But there's still plenty to do. Please visit anglicanaid.org.au forward slash Undeceptions, to lend your support to an organisation Buff and I have long trusted. Help empower children to do what we frankly take for granted, chase their dreams and build a brighter future for themselves and their communities. Go to anglicanaid.org.au forward slash undeceptions. Thank you. We are so grateful to our friends at Morling College for their support of the Undeceptions podcast, and they've just launched Morling To Go, a free series of short courses for you to explore key questions about the Christian faith, like why believe in God? That's a good one. How can a good God let bad things happen? Or simply, why Jesus? you can check out the free Morling to Go series and other study options hand-picked specifically for Undeceptions listeners. Just go to mauling.edu.au forward slash Undeceptions. Mauling, by the way, is spelt M-O-R-L-I-N-G. .edu.au forward slash Undeceptions.
1: I definitely think of us as a Christian band because we primarily are making music that's about faith to encourage other people in their faith. So it feels, I mean, that's what we're trying to do. It's specific. It's not just, you know, making songs about anything. I pretty much only have ever written
0: about faith, even as a kid. That's Chad Gardner, founder, songwriter and lead singer of the acclaimed rock band King's Kaleidoscope. Chad has toured the world with his band, playing and singing songs that deal with his faith journey, and he does it to thousands of people every night. The band's 2019 record, Zeal, deals directly with our theme of deconstruction, with many of the songs reflecting Chad's own shifting beliefs, as well as those of his friends and bandmates. Chad wears his heart on his sleeve. I found him inspiring. Without the philosophical language, he was pretty Kirkigorian. I just have a big team. I'm very collaborative,
1: and it, it takes really close friends that are often co-writing with me to help really reflect back to me what actually is going on in my life and what where sort of the nuggets of of truth are being found that I can write into songs. And then... On the road side, it is hard. Every night is different. Some nights, some songs, uh, I really feel like I'm connecting with. Other nights, other songs, I'm connecting with. And there's really no way to tell. Last week, before I'm on a little break of two right now, but a week ago, there's a song that usually I can just kind of get through, and it's I, it actually is hard to sing. So I feel very performative with it. But then in the middle of the song, I just the lyric hit me, and I just started crying, and I couldn't even sing it. And everybody afterwards in the band was like, oh, my gosh, Chad, what happened? We could barely finish that song. What happened to you? And it's like, I don't know. Sometimes the lyrics for certain songs meet me where I'm at on that particular day, and they end up being sort of, yeah, more emotional, or I end up feeling them more alive.
0: King's Kaleidoscope was formed in 2010, with members attending Mars Hill Church at the University of Washington campus. Some of our listeners will be familiar with Mars Hill. It was a huge multi-site megachurch based in Seattle and co-founded, most famously, by Mark Driscoll. Mark was renowned for his straight-shooting, no-compromise approach to the Bible, and he was behind a huge church-planting movement, not just in Seattle, but around the world. True story, when he first came out to Australia in, I think, 2008, I spent a morning with him in Sydney, and I even asked him if I ever wanted to plant a church, would he be open to my becoming part of his movement? He was open to it, until he learned, I reckon women should be giving sermons in church. That's not a good fit, he said. Fair enough. Anyway, Driscoll resigned from his post as lead pastor about six years later in 2014, following reports of, well... You can chase the reports easily enough. It's all pretty depressing. The entire Mars Hill Church disbanded a few months later at the start of 2015. Christianity Today has an incredible podcast that goes into all of this. It's called The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill. We'll put a link in the show notes. In this environment, Chad started King's Kaleidoscope while he was working as worship pastor. That's the pastor who looks after the praise music in church. He left Mars Hill in 2013, just a year before the spiralling collapse of the church. But the fallout from the church's closure was substantial and many former leaders have since undergone public deconstruction, with some sadly walking away from the faith altogether. All of this to say, Chad is familiar with today's topic, having walked right alongside it. I asked him to give us his reflections on this chapter of his career. I'm sure he's sick of answering questions, but he was very kind about it. And just a heads up, Chad mentions CCM which stands for Christian Contemporary Music. It's a massive genre of popular music, especially in the US, where its market share of the music industry is bigger than jazz and classical combined.
1: I grew up going to church my whole life. I was very involved in it. And early on, I'd say like, you know, 13, 14, I kind of knew that I wanted to do something in the the worship music space that was very alternative to what, sort of, you know, CCM and kind of American, the American music, in, Christian music industry had to offer. And so Mars Hill was very attractive to me at that point. It was a church in Seattle, it was a big mega church and everything they were doing was on the edges or like the tip of the spear. They, they were writing all their own music, they were arranging all their own hymns. And so it was like a perfect, for me, I was very much creatively curious about it. So basically that's what happened when I was eight, and when I was at uh, 20, 21, actually. I interned there and then got a job there uh, and left when I was 25 before the church had a very public implosion. But during that time, you know, I was worship directing and um, leading worship every Sunday and starting to arrange hymns, you know, doing a little bit of writing, but really I was only kind of arranging all the other worship pastors' songs or rearranging hymns. If I could sum it up, I would say of all the things that happened to Mars Hill, good and bad, the thing that it m- primarily did for me was it was a sort of like a creative incubator and a really good environment for pushing against the boundaries of what popular church music was at the time. And yeah, so I'm grateful for it. Screaming, quiet, I whisper Can you hear me now? now.
3: Turn the demons down
1: Watch me walk away
0: um all that happened
1: there. Uh dent your faith. This I mean it's hard sometimes I feel like bad saying this, but no. I don't think you have to feel bad about that. Well yeah, I just mean it's it's a very hard thing for a lot of people and a lot of people have very real church hurt from mega churches and big institutions. But I think so I mean it was very difficult, right? Like my wife and I met planting a church for Marcel on the college campus, helping with that team. And then we, our first three years of marriage were in that environment. It was very hard on us. But as far as like my personal faith in, in Jesus, I I went into that situation with a, a solid, grounded faith. I didn't become a Christian in that environment. And so when that blueprint sort of was shown for what it was, it was like, this is actually not all that there is in the world of faith and that sort of got ripped up and torn out and thrown away I still had enough of a my own blueprint of faith that that was okay and I will say I'm I'm grateful to God for this even though it was brutal but the week that my wife and I resigned the week we left a series of really hard things happened which actually forced us into relying on on the Holy Spirit and just kind of force us back into prayer and and looking to God. My wife got in a car accident. Her father was diagnosed and passed away from um, cancer within 10 weeks. We lost our first son to a stillbirth and we lost another family member. And this was all within, I think, five or six months. And that was right after we left. So in a sense, whatever would have happened where we were like, what is church and what is faith and what is real about God? things got so hard in a very real way specifically around death that i honestly just feel like the lord gifted us the gift of faith for those those things and they overtook what could have happened with the bitterness and jadedness and then after that healing sort of we circled around and looked around and was like wow a lot of our friends are seriously struggling And it's understandable why. And yeah, we sort of ended up making a record about that as well called Zeal. But personally, it it was more like I understood it. I understood that there was sin and that human institutions fail all the time for a lot of reasons. Staring back at the void, settled quiet I whisper, can you hear me now? Can you hear me now?
0: I asked Chad why, despite all the struggles, he chose to remain in church after it all. Tell me, you know, to to what degree have you personally experienced any kind of deconstruction? And you, you've already hinted that you saw some of your friends go down that path. The environment of the mega church that I was a part of for a
1: few years was very sure of itself. There wasn't very much nuance. It was, it was in a sense, even competitive with other perspectives of Christianity. And, and in a sense that actually became the cornerstone and the foundation of a lot of my friends' faith, maybe mine in some ways for, for, for a time. But like I said, you know, I, I had had a decent amount of life before being in that environment where I, I was familiar with praying. I was familiar with my relationship with God on my own. And so when that foundation sort of fell out from under the whole church, I just did see a lot of friends who, if that had been their initiation into belief, that was sort of what was caused a lot of questions. So I'm sure I have deconstructed a lot of those things. It wasn't a conscious effort for me. It was more like a very clear realization. I, I also think that, working on staff at a church like that, you see it earlier. So a lot of my deconstructing of like, all right, this is not real Christianity, or this is a twist on this. I think that was happening naturally just with me and my friends on staff, where we were seeing that for a couple of years coming down the pipeline. It didn't all hit like an explosion when the church decided to, to shut down and, and all of that. But I could feel the, the impact of that explosion with most of my close friends, especially a lot of the people in the band. So my proximity to it is sort of my experience of it rather than like a personal wrestling with, with it so much. And once again, I have the posture of being a kid that was raised in the church that also had a pretty you know serious panic attack disorder my whole life, or at least, at least, especially as a child, different waves of anxiety disorder. And I, that posturing has, has left me feeling very needy often. Like I I want to commune with God. I want, I I want to believe in God when I, even when it feels hard, I don't like the feeling of being, <laughs> of, of sort of tearing that idea of God apart because I've relied on it so heavily. So in a way i i want to say that maybe some of the suffering that god has allowed me to go through has actually helped me be more resilient with like i said proximity or environment of deconstructing god and faith and church
0: yeah i mean that's a an incredibly important insight that you in response to your Anxiety and the sense of neediness that you, that you mentioned, which yeah, a lot yeah. of artists have. I mean, a lot of humans, yeah, yeah. Have it, but a lot sure, of artists sure. have it. Are aware of um, it? Yeah. <laughs> many, many find their their vitality from an audience or oh yeah uh, from you know from fans from mm-hmm. from the church structure or whatever. And and you've just said you haven't. You've gone straight to the the thing that doesn't change, God Himself. Some of the some of that stuff was actually really
1: helpful to me. I can feel the memories again in this field of foreign oxygen. I'm awake without the medicine. I forgot the joy of
0: suffering. I can feel the... Am I right that some of your mates from those days have walked away? from the faith
1: yeah yeah um for sure some of the people that were in the band and i will say i mean i don't know how much to really talk about it except for that for most of them they're they know the bible they're were educated in it they studied it sometimes more than me and one sense or angle i have that's a this is a broad brush to a to a lot of people that i know but it almost feels like there is a over-intellectualizing of the gospel and their relationship with Jesus and, and less of a relationship that had, that had sort of a, like a deeper emotion to it. And I know that sounds a little like trivial or like nebulous, but a lot of people were attracted to Mars Hill because they sort of banged this drum of, we are theologically sound. We are the strongest theology in the world you know, I mean, geez, like I remember being 19 and getting like, you know, Grudem's like systematic theology and like sitting around and reading that for whatever that was worth, you know, because that's what legit Christians do. And so then all of a sudden when what legit Christians do is not legit in a way, right? When the leader has a big failure and sort of those tropes, you can't really like stand on them. That's a different type of faith than a, like I said, just like a neediness or a longing or like a love for God being with, with like that's the, that's the kind of faith that I've been trying to nurture in my life is, life is hard, there's suffering, there's huge questions, this is a mystery, I don't have all the answers, but I want to love God and I want to feel God's love in me, abiding with him throughout this journey with all the questions in the world. And so, I often just sort of think about my friends that are struggling and it feels very much in their heads. And what I want to say to them sometimes is, okay. I
0: was about to ask you. Yeah, well. What would you want to say to them?
1: Well, (laughs) I want to say to them like, okay, I understand that you have like huge theological questions and like huge problems with the church. And actually pretty much every Christian could agree with you on a lot of those things. Like you can see there's clearly problems and there's, there's clearly mystery that you are not gonna solve. But if you're taking all of this time to read books, to like unpack things, or listen to podcasts that are helping you unpack things, what if you took that hour every day and just sat in silence in prayer or what if you took that hour every day and sat with one section of scripture and meditated on it? Because I feel like that side of the relational, and, and honestly, I'm just going to say it: like prayer with God, that that really changes things. Like it's like, where is the energy going? If the energy is going to uh, untangling things, you're, you're kind of going to be left completely untangled. And redirecting that energy from from deconstructing resources into just honestly like just try it if you're gonna go if you if this is that important like what if you spend an hour a day in prayer for a month and see see what the lord has for you that's honestly where i would go
0: This statement from Chad is deceptively profound, actually. It's the kind of thing Kirkigore recommended, not to deny your intellect, but to set it to the side in order to confront the real God, not try and intellectualize God, because any God you can account for and fully understand almost certainly isn't the real thing. So just go and be with God and see what happens. Anyway, if you want to hear the sophisticated version, go back to that episode from last season all about Gore. It's called Blind Faith. Let's press pause. I've got a five-minute Jesus for you. A doubter once came to Jesus hoping for healing for his son. And Jesus said, and by the way, this is in Mark chapter 9, everything is possible for one who believes. Then the boy's father replied, I do believe, help me overcome my unbelief. The man is a doubter. And I think there are some important things to say about doubt before noticing how Jesus treated this particular doubter. There are different kinds of doubt. Some doubts are neutral, some are problematic, and some are even kind of positive. In the neutral category, I'd place what you might call intellectual doubt. This is when our confidence in something wanes because of what seems like a compelling counter-argument. Intellectual doubt isn't necessarily bad, it's just an intellectual response to a challenge. Perhaps a really smart friend beats us in an argument. Perhaps we saw some History Channel documentary or a Washington Post Christmas article claiming something shocking about the Christian faith. I don't think we should feel troubled by these kinds of doubts. We should just do what Luke says he did in his research for his gospel. In the opening sentence, he says, I have carefully investigated everything. Over the years, I've become convinced there is no question you could raise against the Christian faith that hasn't been comprehensively answered by some nerd in some book in some library somewhere. Some doubts aren't so neutral, because some doubts aren't even intellectual. There's what you might call moral doubt. This is doubting because we want to live or think contrary to the Christian faith. I've met many people over the years who present as having intellectual doubts, but after some self analysis, they admit that really, they're just trying to relieve the cognitive dissonance between what Christianity says and what they want to do and think. Instead of doubting themselves and their motives, they doubt Christianity. It might be doubting what the Bible says about sex because we don't like what the Bible says about sex. It could just as easily be doubting what Jesus said about money and the poor because we want to keep our money. The answer to this moral doubt is to learn to doubt our doubts. There's a third kind of doubt that emerges from a more positive place. You could call it psychological doubt. It's a protective trick that our mind plays on us when we're considering some kind of deeper commitment. It's a natural psychological mechanism to keep us from risky behaviour. It's like the cold feet some people get before their wedding day. It's the doubt I experience every time I hop on a plane. In my head, I know the plane's not gonna crash, yet I know the plane's gonna crash. What's going on there? It's the mind playing what you might call past protection. So much hangs on the truth of something, or the stability of the aircraft I flew on just this morning, that I don't allow myself fully to trust it. A similar psychological doubt can arise when thinking about deeper commitment to the Christian faith. So much hangs on the truth of Christ. The stakes are so great. Our mind says, are you sure? Are you really sure? We shouldn't feel guilty about this kind of doubt. I reckon we should just relax, recognise it for what it is, and then just take the next small step in the right direction. And this is why we find some tender hearted statements about doubt in the Bible. In a little book in the New Testament called Jude, written by Jesus' brother Jude, he writes, Be merciful to those who doubt. Perhaps this is intellectual doubt, perhaps it's psychological doubt, perhaps the doubts that arise from disappointment or hardship. Whichever way we read that, the idea of being merciful to the doubter is lovely. Christ has mercy on doubters. So should Christians. And so should you on yourself. And that brings me back to Jesus. True faith shouldn't be confused with intellectual certainty. I mean, you can be certain of the truth of God and not have Christian faith. True Christian faith isn't intellectual agreement that something is true. It's trusting our lives to the one revealed in the gospel. So it's possible for someone to have no doubts about Christianity and still not have trusted themselves to Christ. Equally, it's possible for someone to experience doubts and yet have real, genuine faith. We are not saved or doomed by the fluctuations in our cognitive belief. The man who came to Jesus for the healing of his son cried out in Mark chapter nine, I do believe, help me overcome my unbelief. And you only have to read the rest of Mark nine to see that Jesus does what his brother years later would recommend. He was merciful on those who doubt. Of course, Jude picked it up from Jesus, not the other way around, if you know what I mean. Jesus healed that man's son, even though the man didn't quite believe it could happen. So if you're a doubter, don't fret. Don't deny the doubts. Relax, take a deep breath, assess what kind of doubt it is, and then say to Christ, help me overcome my unbelief, and then see what happens. You can press play now. Some of my skeptical listeners will hear this conversation about Christians deconstructing, and they may have heard the news reports about, you know, people abandoning the faith. And their response will be, yeah, obviously Christianity's just so fragile. You know, if so many people are, you know, deconstructing and then deconverting Christianity just can't hack it what would you say to my skeptical listener
4: I would say for every person who deconstructs there's dozens and dozens who are faithful there won't be stories about them they won't make the news because who wants to hear a story about a pastor of 150 people is faithful in teaching the Bible and holds on to his faith Not very interesting. So I just did a show recently. It actually took off. I didn't expect it on YouTube about a former megachurch pastor who wrote a book called Goodbye Jesus. And I mean, it was last I checked. Goodbye Jesus is a book by former megachurch pastor Tim
0: Sledge, who served for nearly 40 years as a leader in the Southern Baptist movement before renouncing his faith. His reason? Well, he writes... After living and leading in the church for decades, I saw no consistent evidence of an ongoing supernatural presence, and I wanted to see that evidence with all that was in me. Sean discusses this book at length with his Biola University colleague, Scott Ray, on the Think Biblically podcast. We'll put a link
4: to that episode in the
0: show notes.
4: And I mean, it was, last I checked, like a couple hundred thousand views. Somehow it hit a nerve with people. And it's a pretty dramatic story. And I just feel for this former mega church pastor who's now a, uh, he's now an atheist and he's now outspoken. But I think about, yeah, his story's dramatic and people see it and have the response that you say, but I know dozens and dozens and dozens of small and large church pastors who are faithful and who are following. So it's easy to focus on the dramatic stories that get the press and miss the majority of what's going on. But second, I, my, my faith is not rooted in whether or not others follow the faith. It would certainly take a hit on me, John, if my dad or other heroes I look up to left their faith. That would affect me. But I've asked myself a lot, why do I believe? Why am I a Christian? And I can tell you, I'm a Christian because I think it's true. I don't put my faith in human beings because I've let people down and every human being is going to let you down except Jesus. So for a pastor who says that, I'd say three things. I'd say, number one, that's understandable. There's a lot of Christians who are leaving the faith, so I get it why you would feel that way. I'd say, second, there's a lot more who staying faithful than who are not. And third, what really matters is, is Christianity true? Don't let seeing somebody walk away from their faith, allow you to dismiss a faith tradition with deep philosophical and historical and scientific truths. You've still got to wrestle with the question, who is Jesus?
0: Different people have different things to deconstruct. For some, it might involve deconstructing old structures or recent fads or bad arguments. For others, it'll involve rebuilding, a sense of what it means to go to church and what meeting on a Sunday should look like. For others still, it might be about grappling with the ethics of Christianity. Why are certain things commanded and what does that mean about how we live out our faith in the world? Deconstructing will be scary for some and necessary and even overdue for others. But I don't believe it's something that will threaten the claims of Christianity. If it helps someone attain a more realistic picture of God, Aquinas style, then I'm all for it. Yet I recognize deconstruction can be tragic. It can be the complete undoing of the faith, throwing the baby out with the bathwater. And I find that honestly heartbreaking. But I still think asking the questions and churches creating a culture of asking questions are vital things for a flourishing Christianity. I ended by asking my guests, as I often do, what all this has to do with the doubters in my audience. The person who's listening who is deconstructing, you know, they, they have a memory of being a true Christian and they've loved loving God, but now they they just, they aren't sure that questions are plenty, the ethical questions, the intellectual questions. I, I guess it'd be good to end if you can just give your best advice to someone who's just hanging on to the Christian faith by their fingertips.
4: I love that you asked that question because in some ways I was there in my life a number of years ago. My co-author was there and that's exactly what motivated me to write this book. I get asked that question all the time and it was like, I just gotta write a book to help people. So here I'd say a couple things. I'd say, number one, you're not alone. You're not alone. You might feel alone. You might not have the support around you, but I hear from dozens and dozens of people in your shoes. So you are not alone. Second, There are answers, I'm convinced, if we're willing to find them. There are answers that are out there. Christianity has a rich tradition of answering the toughest questions. And I'm a believer because I think it's true. So there are answers. Third, I would encourage you to try to get to the root of what it is. I cited that proverb earlier about the purposes in a man's heart are deep, but a man of wisdom draws it out. Maybe it is intellectual questions, maybe it's emotional, maybe there's spiritual abuse that is there. I would really encourage you, maybe through a counselor, through a trusted Christian friend, to try to get to the heart of it. What is it that really triggered you and caused you uh, to question things in your faith? And realize that there's a lot of people who go through questioning and come back with a stronger, more firm faith because they shed away secondary things that aren't essential. And yet when people do that, sometimes the faith that they land in is a little bit different than the one that they started with. And that's okay. Christianity has a big tent within certain essential beliefs. Give yourself some space within the essentials of the faith to just wrestle with some of these secondary things and allow yourself to ask these questions. And I think the last thing I would say This is probably more than I should have given, but Jude says, have mercy on those who doubt. I remember doubting and it's painful. It's not just an intellectual exercise, it hurts. And I just say, God loves you. God's grace is there with you. There are believers that I hope are in your life that'll just listen to you and support you and care for you through this because it can be a heavy weight. The last thing I would say is don't do it alone. You cannot do it alone. That is a recipe for disaster. So find other believers you trust and talk with them and pray with them and get a support. This is not meant to be a one man or one woman journey. Get some others in your life to process this with them. And here's
0: a final word from Chad Gardner. I believe that
1: seeing the world through the lens that it is wild and dangerous and untamed and almost I want to use the word enchanted is a better life than something that can be sterilized and boxed off and controlled and the way that I experienced that through faith has led me to feel and I'm gonna just say emotionally, more alive than at any other points in my life. That's not even an argument. It's not an intellectual argument. It's just the experience of life for me is greater living inside the mystery of the gospel, utterly dependent and reliant on God than trying to solve it all. I don't have joy living that way. And I have seen other people continuously try to solve it all. And it seems like it's an endless cul-de-sac of doubt, reassurance, doubt, reassurance, doubt, reassurance on like f- trying to take new ground and, and you know, f- figure it all out. And so I guess my, my, my thing to them would just be, I'd want to be just be their friend and just have them sort of live alongside me and see how see how we handle life coming at us in a different way. But from a headline thing, I just think that life is more beautiful and the experience of life is more beautiful with God and enchanted with God.
0: If you like what we're doing, why not consider becoming an Undeceptions Plus subscriber? For as little as $5 Aussie a month, you get a bunch of extras, including extended episodes. There's a nice section in this episode on our desire for authenticity and Undeceptions Plus listeners got it. You'll also get extra bits of the interviews with some of our guests, access to our special Underceptions Plus Facebook group, and the occasional virtual event like our upcoming Christmas Trivia Night, that I'm only just hearing about as I read these words. Plus, you'll get the first look at all the other super fun things that the Underceptions team is doing, and we're doing a lot. Stay tuned for our first documentary our first book based on the amazing interviews we've done over the years, and a tour of live podcast recordings that we're planning in both the US and Australia in 2024. So it's worth being part of the club. Head to undeceptions.com forward slash plus to join today. And if you have questions about this or any other episode, you can head to our website and send us a question. Try recording your questions so we can hear your beautiful voices on our next Q&A episode. We love hearing from you. Next episode is an exciting one for us. We're releasing our first ever live episode recorded at our Undeceptions conference back in late July in Australia with our friend, Rebecca McLaughlin. She's talking to us about what Jesus looked like through the eyes of the women who surrounded him in his lifetime. It was super fun to talk to her in front of almost 600 Undeceptions listeners. See ya. Undeceptions is hosted by me, John Dixon, produced by Kaylee Payne, and directed by Mark Comicon Hadley. Sophie Hawkshaw is on socials and membership. Alastair Belling is writer and researcher. Siobhan McGuinness is our online librarian. Lindy Leviston remains my wonderful assistant. Santino DeMarco is chief finance and operations consultant, editing by Richard Humwee. Special thanks to our series sponsor, Zondervan, for making this Undeception possible. Undeceptions is the flagship podcast of Undeceptions.com. Letting the truth out. An Undeceptions Podcast. That's Christian rapper Lecra E. In a clip posted on Ah, gotcha, 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 gotcha.
5: Did you, see,
4: did you see Al's face? He was just like, is, <laughs> is he for real? <laughs> well,
2: uh, I, I, I just felt really bad again because I was like, surely John knows who Lecrae
5: is, so I'm not going to put the pronunciation there.
2: Hey. <laughs> I...